At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of a series that has landed us in Matthew chapters 18 through 20. In this series, we've called Relating To, because in these verses, Jesus is providing some instruction to his followers about a number of areas that are significant to us. How do we relate to our children? How do we relate to temptation? How do we relate to those who have lost their way or those who have wronged us? Uh, This week, Jesus continues in that line in, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, talking about how do we relate to our spouse. And he's going to talk about issues of marriage and divorce. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at those verses together. But before we we open our scripture together and, and look at those verses, I want to just ask you, when was the last time you had to agree to the terms of something? So think about maybe it was the last time you downloaded iTunes to your computer or to your phone, and and you had to click yes, that you agreed to those terms. Anybody done that recently? Now, when you did that, let me ask you, how many of you actually read all of those terms and conditions? Mr. Sagabiel, God bless you. Most of us, though, have not done that, right? Most of us just, we just want the software. We'll say yes. We don't care that you're going to spy on us for the rest of our lives and that we're going to get spam emails and ads. It's okay. We just want the music that we want, right? Or maybe it wasn't related to software that you downloaded. Maybe it was related to medicine that you needed. You just were feeling so bad that when they gave you that, this might happen if you take this piece of paper. You just threw it away or you filed it. You don't care that you're going to sprout a third arm. You really don't. You just want the mucus to go away or whatever it is, right? When it comes to terms and conditions, we get used to just ignoring those. But there are certain things that it would make sense for us to really consider before we commit to it. And one of those things is certainly marriage. You know, when I think about the, the, the idea of marriage, I've had the incredible opportunity over the last 22 years, I, I counted the other, the other day, over 125 weddings I've been able to be a part of in the last 22 years. And I look around this room and I see many of your faces um, that I got to stand with you on this stage or somewhere else in that moment. And it's just such a, such a, a special blessing. But you can ask some of those whose weddings I've helped officiate. One of the things that I always want to do before that wedding is I want to send them a Word document that has the vows that they will say in it, because I want them to read the vows first. Now, now why is that? Well, that's because I don't want them to be standing there on their wedding day and say, wait a minute, what am I committing to? You know, like, I don't want that, right? Before you commit your life and marriage, you ought to know what you're committing to. You ought to read the terms and conditions. You ought to look at the fine print. And what's remarkable is in all of those weddings that I've had the uh, privilege of officiating, as I've sent them those vows, I've never had a couple look at it and go, you know what? I don't think so. They've always looked at it, read it, and said yes. And given that experience, I think that Matthew chapter 19 is really interesting. Because in Matthew 19... Jesus goes over the terms and conditions of marriage. And when he gets done, you know what his disciples said? His disciples said, if that's the way it is, maybe we shouldn't get married. Don't you want to know what Jesus said? 
That's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what Jesus said and why the disciples, mistakenly, I might add, came to that conclusion. As we look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, as they talk about how we relate to our spouse, specifically what does Jesus call us to do to follow him in the area of marriage and concerning divorce. I'm going to read these verses for us, and and then we'll we'll back up and in three movements find some deeper meaning for us today. Matthew 19 uh, begins, and it says this. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, this is letting us know that the events of Matthew 19 happened after the events of chapter 18. In chapter 18, remember, Jesus was up in Galilee where he spent the majority of his earthly ministry up in Galilee, probably in the city of Capernaum, hanging out around Peter's house, ministering to people in that region. After having these conversations with them about children and, and about those who have wronged them and about those who have lost their way, after talking about those things, it says Jesus left Galilee and he headed south. It talks about how he went to this region called Judea beyond the Jordan. Well, what was Jesus doing? When we think about what Jesus was doing at this time, he, he leaves Galilee for the last time in his in his earthly ministry before his resurrection, he leaves that area that's so familiar to him, and he begins the journey to Jerusalem. Now, why was he going to Jerusalem? To offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. En route to Jerusalem, it says he went to this area called Judea beyond the Jordan. It was an area of Judea just on the other side, the eastern edge of the Jordan River, and it was an area that was ruled by one of the Herods. And the Herod that ruled that area had a fortress there or a palace, and that was the fortress or palace where John the Baptist had been executed because of his criticism of said Herod and his marital infidelities. So Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, is in the shadow of the place where his cousin and friend John the Baptist had died for speaking out against marital infidelity, and Jesus is then approached. Verse 2 Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. His compassion was not relegated only to Galilee. Everywhere he went, Jesus was Jesus. But verse 3 tells us that in the the south region here, he is confronted by some Pharisees, by some religious leaders. Verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They came up and asked him a question about divorce. Now, why is that? Did the Pharisees come up and ask this question about divorce because they just were sincere seekers of truth? No. It said they came up to him to test him. Remember, he's in the region ruled by Herod in the shadow of the place where John the Baptist had lost his head because of his teaching about marriage. The Pharisees come and ask this question, hoping to trap Jesus so that maybe Herod would take care of their Jesus problem. That question comes, well, Jesus doesn't dodge it. He answers it directly. Verse 4 and following, it says, He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, friends, in those 12 verses, we're going to see three things today that will help us make sense of how we might follow Christ and relate to our spouse, to the issue of marriage, and to the issue of divorce. The first thing is to see what Jesus says about marriage. And we see this in verses 4 to 6. The Pharisees come up and they want to talk about divorce. But when they want to talk about divorce, where does Jesus start? Jesus starts by talking about marriage. Why? It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, guys, there's no way for us to have an educated, relevant conversation about divorce unless we first understand what marriage is. So let's begin at the beginning. And, and Jesus says, and, and I'm going to begin at the very beginning. I'm going to take out the book of Genesis, and I'm going to quote from Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to quote from Genesis chapter 2 so that you can understand what God's intention and plan for marriage was from the very, very beginning. Before sin entered the world, before anything else corrupted anything, God had a plan for marriage. He wants them to know what marriage is. Now, what does Jesus say about marriage? Well, quoting from Genesis, he makes a number of statements. The first thing that Jesus says about what marriage is, is he says that marriage is from God. Notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What he's saying is that, that marriage was not man's idea. It wasn't some social construct. It wasn't something that was added at a later date. When there were only two people on the, on the earth, Adam and Eve, at that point God instituted this situation of, of marriage. It was God's plan from the very beginning. At the, at the very beginning, God created Adam, right? And, and in chapter 2 of Genesis, God looks around at the earth and he has said that everything is good. It is good that there are birds in the sky. It is good that there are fish in the sea. It is good that there are trees in the garden. It is good that there was Adam who was created, but there is something that is not good. And in Genesis chapter 2, what is it that God says wasn't good? It wasn't good that man should be alone. And so God created woman. And in that moment, God created the institution of marriage. It was God's idea from the very start. The very first two who were created, a man and a woman, created for each other to live this life in marriage. Now, what is it that God had in mind? Well, God had a lot of things in mind for them. 
First of all, he gave them a mission. In chapter 1, it says to man and to woman, to this first family, he gave them the job of ruling over the earth and subduing it. They were given a, a task together, a purpose to share. Not only did he, did he give them that, that task to share, but he also gave them the opportunity to procreate and to fill the earth. That was part of God's intention for marriage. He, he created a man and a woman so that together there could be more than just two people. There could be billions of people ultimately living on the face of the earth. That was part of God's design from the, Mary, from the beginning as he created marriage. From the book of, of uh, Ephesians in chapter 5, we also learn that one of the things that God was doing in marriage was he was creating in marriage something that pointed us to, to the way that Jesus relates to the church. That was God's intention. That was his design from the start, that there would be a testimony inside of this committed relationship of marriage. But not only was it all of those things, but I believe it was also for the enjoyment of Adam and Eve. Now, why do I know that? Why do I think that? Because when Eve was created for Adam, you know what Adam said? Whoa, man. Come on, it just... Humor me a little bit. Adam, Adam looked at Eve and he said, whoa, look at this. This is flesh of my flesh. God, thank you. You have given us this joy together. See, this is the, the purpose of marriage. It was from God from the very beginning. Jesus wants to make sure they knew that. But not only did he want to make sure they knew it was from God, also he wanted to them to remember and know that marriage was for a man and a woman. He made them male and female. He made them for each other, and it's a man and it's a woman. It's not a polygamous situation from the beginning. It's not a homosexual situation from the beginning. It's God's desire that a man and a woman would come together. This is something that is, is seen in the biology. The parts are just made to go together. It's something that is seen in history in the pattern of civilizations from the start. But even more importantly, it's something that's seen in Scripture. From the beginning, God created the male and female. This is the pattern and the picture of marriage. Jesus affirms that and reminds us of it. Not only is it from God, not only is it for a man and a woman, but God places them in a priority relationship. The Genesis passage talks about, for this reason, a, a man and his wife will leave their father and mother and they will create a new nuclear family together. Something new is created when a husband and a wife come together, a new family. And it's not that this new family is totally disconnected from their past and their history. They're still called to honor their parents, but there's a new primary relationship that they are a part of. Think of, you know, when this is first said of Adam and Eve, it's like they didn't have a mom and a dad. So why is it even included there? Well, it's included there as this editorial comment to, to show that marriage creates something new a new life, a new opportunity. You know, many in this room have, have entered into marriage and you have entered into marriage with some deficits from your past. Mom and dad, divorced, broken relationship. Maybe there was some abuse in your past, whatever it might be. And you, you, you look up and you find yourself married and you go, I, I just, I didn't receive this. Some of you have received this wonderful Ward and June Cleaver 
opportunity, right? And, and that's, that's wonderful. So be thankful for that and call your parents today and thank them for that legacy. But others of you feel like you've inherited something far less than that. But when I see that a husband and, and a wife leave their families of birth and they form something new, what that always reminds me of is that that new couple has a new opportunity. What is their legacy going to be? A new start, new life, new hope, new opportunity to follow Christ and leave a godly legacy from that point on. Jesus wants us to know that marriage is from God. It's for a man and a woman to be in this priority relationship, and that relationship will include a physical union. Jesus says here that for this reason they will come together and the two shall become one flesh. Well, certainly there is, is some emotional connection and, and a depth of spiritual connection between a husband and a wife. What I think that Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about here and what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 19 is the physical union sexually between a husband and a wife. They have come together. This, this two becoming one in the original language has the idea of two things being glued together, being glued together. And things are glued together because you want them to stay together, right? Let's think about just an illustration that maybe will help you make sense of this. In preparing for this morning's message, uh, Brendan at the back does such an amazing job helping with slides, but when I bring him my notes for today, uh, it was three pages long, and I did, took those three pages, and I did not glue them together. Why? Because it would be really hard to see page two if those three pages were glued together. It would be impossible to see page three if those things were together. They would have to be torn apart and shredded in order to get them apart. But we don't glue them. What do we do? We take a paper clip and we put it at the top. Why? So we can take that paper clip off and spread the papers out. They have something to do with one another, but they were not intended to be kept together eternally or for the rest of this life, right? They were intended to be clipped and not glued. Friends, what we see in terms of God's plan for marriage is he intends for there to be a permanence in this relationship between a husband and a wife in this life. That's why marriage fits inside of marriage. See, we live in a world that, that considers sex a paperclip. Sexual activity, we just are together for a little while, for our convenience, for our enjoyment, and then we go and do our own thing. That's not the way God created sex. It's not his intention from the start. His intention from the start is that Sex will be a part of permanent relationships, glued together kind of relationships. That was his plan. That was his desire. See, marriage is, is from God. It's, it's for a man and a woman in this priority relationship with a physical union. And it's for a lifetime. Jesus concludes here by saying that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Maybe a statement that was uttered at your wedding comes right here in the mouth of Jesus as he talks about this issue of marriage. It was a lifetime. And what Jesus is really saying there is he says that, that, that marriages actually have a heavenly origin. Your marriage was made in heaven. Now, I know that's really sweet, and you're, you're, you're kind of cuddly, leaning up or whatever, and you're like, not my marriage. It's okay. Here's the thing. I want you just to look. If you're married and your spouse is here, I want you to look at them, and I want you to say, I want you to say, hey, we're a match made in heaven. I'm serious. Yeah, you can do it. You're a match made in heaven. Now, now why do I say that? 
Because what Jesus is referring to here is he says that marriages are, have an origin in the highest court. God has brought them together for a lifetime. See, an, an earthly court has no jurisdiction to tear apart what God has established. That's Jesus' point. That kind of commitment for a lifetime gives all kind of incentive for reconciliation to happen, for forgiveness to happen, for things to be worked through. That's what Jesus says about marriage. It's from God. It's for a man and a woman in a priority relationship with physical union for a lifetime. Now, when Jesus gets done saying that, the Pharisees, I'm convinced, didn't even hear the last half of what he said. You ever been in a conversation where you're formulating your argument and you don't even hear what they're saying because you're ready to lay your next card on the table? I think that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're like, hey, Jesus is talking about Genesis. Oh, you want to go Scripture? We'll go Scripture. We'll go all the way to Deuteronomy, okay, Jesus? So here we get ready to go. We're getting ready to quote Deuteronomy to try to prove you wrong. They want to get back to talking about divorce. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They said, you're you're talking all about marriage, but hey, divorce is a part of our world, Jesus. And we have scanned our Old Testament and we have found our passage that somehow justifies divorce in our world. And so we want you to talk not about marriage, but we want you to talk about divorce. And, And here's something that's really important for us to know. You know, sometimes we think of the Pharisees, we, we often paint them as these incredibly religious people and very pious, but the reality is they were very self-righteous, and when it came to the topic of marriage, they were morally bankrupt as a, as a group. Divorce was extremely common among the Pharisees. There were a couple of different groups of thought among Pharisees. I mean, there there certainly was one group inside of Israel that believed that divorce was not allowed for any reason, but they were very much a a minority position. But within the Pharisees, there were were two groups. There were some who believed that divorce was okay only in extreme circumstances, but there were others who believed that divorce was okay for almost any circumstance. See, they quote there in that verse, they quote, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and in Deuteronomy 24, it it talks about a husband giving his wife a certificate of divorce if he finds some indecency in her. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees had taken that some indecency and they had made it to mean anything they wanted it to mean. They had had taken that some indecency and they had translated it to mean if my wife doesn't cook dinner the way I like it, I can divorce her. If another woman catches my eye, I can divorce her. That's what the common view of the Pharisees in Jesus' day was. And so they come to Jesus and they said, hey, talk to us about divorce then because we feel like we have the ability to get a divorce for any old reason at all because in Deuteronomy 24, it said that a husband gives his wife a certificate of divorce if she is found to be indecent in some way. So Jesus begins to answer what divorce is. The first thing Jesus says about divorce is that it's not God's plan for marriage. That's what he says. He says this is 
not been so from the beginning. In other words, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the world, he didn't sit around and go, you know what, I, w- I want to create an opportunity for divorce here. I, I'm, I'm thinking that this couple is together today, but they're going to be apart tomorrow. That was not God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't his desire. That's not the picture that he wanted of the kind of commitment he has to us, that he want, wanted echoed in the kinds of commitment between his followers. But it also was something that God knew way more than we did. He knew that divorce would be painful. It would be painful between his children as they separate. It would be painful between his children's children as legacies were disrupted, as pain was gone through. Jesus wants to make sure that the Pharisees are aware that divorce was not part of God's plan for marriage from the start. And you know what, friends? I know looking around the room, there are several in this room who have gone through divorce and the sting and the pain of that, and you could give an amen to that, right? It's painful. It's difficult. It's not God's best. Not only is it not God's plan, but Jesus also wants to correct them and let them know that divorce is allowed, but it's not commanded. It's allowed. It's not commanded. I mean, the the, the Pharisees were coming saying, hey, Moses told us and commanded us that we were to divorce our wives if we found them to be indecent in any way. I mean, you see, hear their kind of self-righteous moral authority in that? Hey, we, we wanted to stay married, but Moses, I mean, come on, let's not lay this at Moses' feet, okay? That was not Moses' heart at all. What Jesus points out was that Moses allowed divorce. He never commanded it. In other words, in a world after the fall, In a world after sin had entered, Moses understood as he wrestled with the Lord and leading God's people and all of these things, there was an understanding that sin could so mess things up that continuing on in marriage might not be possible. So under certain circumstances, divorce would be allowed, but it was never commanded. In other words, a husband and a wife, regardless of what transpires between them, could continue to be married. They could choose to forgive and to reconcile and to work through it. They were never commanded to divorce. But it was allowed in certain circumstances. Well, why was it allowed? Well, it was allowed, Jesus says, due to the hardness of our hearts. In other words, in an ideal situation where people are controlled by the Spirit of God, reconciliation and forgiveness and hope, and even the sin that originated the problem might never have happened, but there certainly would be the hope of reconciliation where two parties are driven and controlled by the Spirit of God. But there are situations that exist in the world, and there are marriages that have existed in the world where those dynamics are not at play, where one has initiated a physical relationship with another, where one has abandoned their marriage covenant and have walked away from their spouse, and the spouse who is left behind, it's really a a sign of God's grace that they are given a certificate that allows them to move on with their life, even though they've been victimized by their spouse before. It was not God's plan God allowed it. He never commanded it. And it was due to the hardness of people's hearts. Also, it's important to see that this was under only certain very extreme circumstances that this would be allowed. 
Remember, the, the Pharisees had the mind that for any old reason at all, we could call the spouse indecent and get rid of them because of the way they cooked or the way they looked or, or they, didn't, they didn't smile the right way or they didn't, they didn't, you know, some way didn't please them in, in some capacity. For any old reason at all, they thought they could dismiss their wife. But Jesus says, it's not that way, friends. Only in extreme circumstances is this allowed. In that extreme circumstance that he allows, he he really defines the indecency of Deuteronomy 24. He defines that indecency as sexual immorality. He uses there the word porneia, not the word for adultery, but a more general sexual term. It could mean homosexual activity. It could mean any sexual activity outside of marriage. We would recognize that porneia as the root from which we get pornography, but it's the idea of when, when one spouse has left the relationship physically and united with another and is unwilling to come back and repent, that divorce is a way to protect the victimized spouse, the left spouse in that scenario. That's what Jesus says. Under certain circumstances, it's allowed. Again, not commanded, but allowed. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 will also talk about abandonment by a believing, uh, an unbelieving spouse leaving a believing spouse. And I would invite you to take a look at that later if this is an area of interest to you. But that's the, the extreme circumstances that Jesus places around this issue of divorce. A fifth thing, though, that we need to see about divorce that Jesus says is that Jesus wanted them to not consider divorce as an easy path to a new spouse. That's what the Pharisees were doing. I'll, I'll issue the certificate of divorce, and then I'll go marry who, I, who catches my eye at this moment. And Jesus said, that's not the intention. The idea of divorce is to protect the victimized spouse, not to allow an erring spouse more opportunity to marry again. That's why he, he says that if these conditions aren't met, then if somebody remarries in that situation, then they've committed adultery. In other words, they've, they've just not taken seriously what the Lord has said about marriage and about divorce. So they go back and forth in this conversation. But after Jesus says that, uh, it's interesting, the Pharisees disappear from the story, right? It's like, okay, we're not getting anywhere with this guy. Apparently, he knows his Deuteronomy better than we do, and they just kind of retreat off of the scene. But what happens next is that Jesus begins to interact with his disciples again, who are always with him in this conversation. And it's his disciples, not the Pharisees. It's his disciples that make this this wild statement then. They say in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, if that's that's really what this is all about, then, then I don't know if it's a good idea to marry. Now, what were they saying when they said that? What were they getting at? What they were saying was, look, I thought marriage was about me having fun. And if my fun begins to be encroached upon because I ended up in the bad marriage, then I want the ability to hit the eject button. If you're telling me I don't have the ability to hit the eject button, then maybe I shouldn't marry at all. That's, that's really what the disciples are saying. Now, keep in mind, some of the disciples are already married. I'm wondering when Peter's wife read this later on, if she's like, you said what? You know, like, counseling happened. We don't know what happened next, right? But that's what, that's what the disciples say. 
in response to this. And, and I just want to acknowledge a couple of things. I, one thing I want to acknowledge is that they had it wrong. They had it wrong. Jesus didn't talk about marriage in a way that made it less than good. He talked about it in the way it was created to be. He talked about it in its purest form. It's what God wants for us in marriage. It's not a relationship based on convenience or some earthly contract, but it's a relationship of self-sacrifice for the betterment of our spouse, to build them up, not to tear them down. That's what God wants. When you hear about that inside of this kind of a committed relationship, you ought to long for that, not run away from it. Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood because here's the thing. What were they saying? I can pursue my own self-interest better single. But in saying that, they show that they not only do they not understand marriage, but they don't understand singleness from God's perspective. What does Jesus say about a eunuch or somebody who remains single? What does he say about that single person at the end of this, these verses? He says that some will choose to remain single for kingdom reasons. In other words, you don't remain single just for your own benefits. You remain single as opportunities to continue to serve the Lord. You either serve the Lord in marriage or you serve the Lord in singleness. And Jesus wanted to to make sure that wherever you fit on that, that you understood and respected this marriage covenant, but you also understood that wherever you fit on this spectrum, God was going to offer you a gift a gift for a special way to serve him, either in marriage or in singleness. And so how might we wrap this up? A couple of thoughts. I know when I teach on this, and and I take this very seriously, and I, I hope that you hear my heart in this, that there are those in the room who are here today and who are divorced. And here we are talking about divorce and remarriage. I, I want you to know this. If you find yourself divorced and you find yourself divorced and in a new marriage at this point, here's what I think the Lord would have you to do. Take this picture of marriage and live it out now. In prayer, deal with the Lord and and however you want to process your past and and forgiveness and those things, but, but live into your new marriage covenant as God defines marriage here in Matthew 19. For others of you, you might find yourself here divorced and now remarried. I'm sorry, divorced and not yet remarried. And if you find yourself divorced and not yet remarried, here's what I would challenge you to do. Read through Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and prayerfully consider how is it that God might have you respond in following him in terms of the opportunity for remarriage. Is remaining single part of God's gift for you in this next season for service, or do you feel a freedom to go ahead and and move on in remarriage in light of these passages? I I think that's a challenge. But for those of us who are here today who are either married or, or single, never married, and longing to be married one day, let us look to Matthew chapter 19 and Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to see a picture of what marriage is really all about. Because it's in those pictures that we find what it was created to be, a gift of life, a gift of blessing, but also a gift of service to the Lord. A man and a woman in a priority relationship for a lifetime. That's what the Lord is offering to us today. And we follow him as we relate to him in light of his word. Let me pray for us as we dismiss. Father God, we thank you so much.
for the privilege of gathering and for worshiping. We thank you that as we look at even hard things like this, that, Father, we can just be uh, encouraged by your heart. We can be encouraged by the gift of marriage that you've laid out for us. And, Father, I pray that, that you would allow each of us the faith to follow you as we relate to our spouse or our future spouse even now. We thank you for the gift of marriage, and we thank you for the picture it gives us of Christ and the church. We gather today in Jesus' name. Amen.